0: Beginning of the end for us in our study through the book of First Peter. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I hope you have found encouragement in it. I hope you found the grace of God in it as well. So we're going to look this morning at 1 Peter, and I'm going to take the whole chapter. And as I said, I'm just going to finish it out today. And so I'm going to read here from 1 Peter beginning in verse 1, of course, chapter 5. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you forever. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, I, have reg- I as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. And I just say that as a way to open. Peace to all of you who are in Christ this morning. May peace reign and rule in our hearts and minds. May peace overcome every circumstance. May peace be the default by which we live in pursuit of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. For years now, decades really, as Christians we have seen, we know that the institution of the family is under attack and has been under attack for quite a while now. The bedrock of society is being just bombarded from every side by the spirit of this age and by culture. And the spirit of the age is, And through the world, it is deconstructing and redefining what the household of God is in any and every way that it possibly can. And when we think about the household, we think about our natural families. And what is family itself, but really a a micro example of a macro truth, which is the church which is also the household of God. And so therefore we know that if the family is under attack, of course the church is also under attack from the spirit of the age. Individual families point to universal family, which is the church itself. How many of you today who are here come on a Sunday or perhaps to another gathering a midweek, a, a Bible study, or one of our hub groups, come and expect to receive the grace of God through the gathering of believers? When you come on a Sunday, do you come expecting to receive grace, to be imparted with grace by God for your life through the gathering that is the church? Brothers and sisters, as I've said before, there is a tremendous Amount, measure of grace that God has portioned for his people that is found in the gathering of the church. The church is so much more than just a Sunday meeting that we come to, or at times that we make our attendance at obligatory because it fulfills a sense of of moral uprightness. The church is a living, breathing organism. The church is significant in God's purpose, and therefore it is no surprise that the spirit of the age would want to attack it as well. But when we gather, when we come through these doors, when we enter the house of a fellow believer to gather and to worship and to pray, by the spirit of God, there is an impartation of grace. There is a measure of divine ability for your life that is given to you that God has purposed Only through the means of the church. I think when we begin to think of it, see it, understand it, believe it in this way, it changes how we approach this, doesn't it? It changes our expectation when we come together. It changes how I interact with you. What is God going to speak through me for you? What is God going to do through you for me or for the rest of the body? And just as a side to say, too, that that also affects how we approach worship and song. When we worship by opening our mouths and singing, there's an expectation that God, by his Spirit, is going to use and to move through us for the betterment of our household of God. Amen? In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul's makes, Paul makes a statement that it has been God's plan from the beginning of time to reveal Jesus Christ through his church. It has been God's plan since the beginning of time that the church would be the rev- the vehicle of revelation for Jesus Christ, the wisdom of Christ. Where he says this, that is the, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known, Paul says in Ephesians, through the church. Two things in that. The first is that God's wisdom is manifold. That the revelation of God through the church is manifold in that it is revealed in a variety of ways. It is not singular. But there is is many different facets to the wisdom of God and one of it being through the church itself revealed. And second is that it is now, that the manifold wisdom of God may now be known that it's present for us, church. It's now in this time that the wisdom of God would be revealed through us as a people. The church is so significant. And it's right here in this truth that the incredible purpose of of God's church for the world and for his people Peter is picking up on, and he's going to speak throughout the rest of his letter. The significance of the church, the grace of God through the church. While chapter 5 is often used as a reference for biblical teaching on church government, and rightfully so, because it is very healthy and helpful, really the key to chapter 5 is found in verse 5, where in quoting Proverbs again, Peter is going to say this. He says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the key of what Peter is saying here in chapter 5. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In this statement, Peter distills the very essence of Christian community into a single statement. Think about it for a moment. The call to humility is the heart of the matter because within it, the revelation of Jesus Christ is brightly shown. Here's how. Like I said last week, when I mentioned that our suffering points to Christ's suffering for us, so does our humility point to Christ's humility on our behalf and on behalf of the world. And this isn't a a new message for Peter Because it's been present all throughout what he has been saying thus far. Whether explicitly or implicitly, the implication is that humility is needed and required to be able to live by the grace of God as he has thus stated. Whether it's husbands and wives, whether it's believers and civil authorities, he speaks of masters and slaves. He talks of now the the church community and the necessity for humility to be present. Humility is at the core of what he's speaking to in this moment. And now he's going to identify its essential presence in the the church itself, how we are to honor one another, how we are to live amongst each other, how we are to care for each other as the church, how we are to lead, how we are to follow. And the, the the essential presence of humility, being within the church, being manifest. And as we as we've been saying and teaching each and every week, and as we've been looking to to find within the portions of Peter's letter, what he's going to say again is that all of this is brought about. By the grace of God. That's what he's saying there in verse five, that God opposes the proud and he gives what? He gives grace to those who are humble. All of this is brought about by the grace of God. That we would live with the same zeal and the same amount of of, of vim and vigor, if you will, that, that Peter is writing to these churches and calling them to live within, in first century new church age, that we now would live with that same amount of zeal. As to this grace for humility, again, verse 5 says that it's so clear that it is God who gives grace, or to say it another way, that grace is present for us to live with humility. Grace is present for us to live with humility. Humility. I think it's easy for us to understand the need for grace and suffering, but perhaps we don't as quickly come to the significance of why grace is necessary in humility when it comes to the church itself. But think about it for a moment. It's actually easily answered. Why is it necessary that grace would provide the ability for us to live humbly with each other? Humility requires that the self be Diminished and that others are promoted instead. It suppresses our fleshly tendency to elevate the self, and it squashes pride, which is the antithesis of humility, right? Humility seeks and promotes the betterment, and the interest, and the care of others above oneself. At the core of it, one also finds, at the core of humility, one must find or does find, patience. Humility requires patience. It requires love. It requires honor. It requires the valuing of Christ's image bearers. Humility requires kindness and compassion, long-suffering, generosity, peacemaking, gentleness, a Christ-centeredness, respect, and on and on and on. So we can understand in that why, why it is necessary that, that God would impart grace to us that we would be able to live in such a way with each other. Again, church, I think I kind of slowly stepped into it when I began, but my point in beginning the way I did was just to say that this church is significant because it bears witness to the person and the truth of Jesus Christ. And therefore, how we bear witness to that is a matter of great importance. And what Peter is saying here is that the the foundational principle of that witness is humility itself. And Peter is going to use two different examples within the roles of the church to convey the presence and how to live rightly in humility with each other because and on behalf of the witness of the church. And remember, too, that the overarching theme of this letter has been encouragement to believers to suffer within this call. And he doesn't abandon that message here in chapter 5 either. There's a connection between humility and suffering that Peter sees, which he addresses in verses 6 and 7, when he says, "...humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him." The significance, the connection for Peter is this, to remember the mighty hand of God moves us to humility. For us to reflect on the faithfulness of God, on the certainty of God, on the power of God, it moves us as individuals to humility. Because God alone is powerful, right? God alone is able. He alone is our deliverer. He alone is our savior. He alone is deserving of the honor of our praise for what he has done. To remember the mighty hand of God in our lives, in your life, moves you to a place of humility. God, it is by your mercy, it's by your grace that I'm standing here. It's by your love and kindness that I live, that I have all that I have, family, possession, health, this faith community, etc. For Peter, our comfort and joy is knowing that as his people, the same strong hand will lift up those who are humble because as Peter says, he cares for you. In verse 7, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God because he cares for you. Therefore, in our suffering, the call is to humbly cast our cares and our anxiety upon him knowing that he will lift us up. And so as I said, there's, there's two groups that Peter is going to use to convey this truth of humility. And really interesting, it's really the only two distinctions that exist within the church. It's leaders and it's the body, all of us, everyone, as Peter is going to say. And he's going to use this order in this structure to model practical humility. And he begins with those who've been given charge to lead the church, which is somewhat apropos as well, because if you remember last week, he had just finished saying that that God's sifting or his purification, as I spoke on last week, begins first within his church. So if if it begins first with his church, then surely or rightly or reasonably, it begins with those who lead his church which is a pretty sobering reality as being a leader of the church. And so I'd like to just importantly point out verses 1 and 2, and I'll try to do it quickly for the sake of time, because I can't read verses 1 and 2 without taking a moment to just reinforce our belief and understanding and practice of biblical eldership and leadership within the church. So in verses 1 and 2 are found these three basic roles or functions of biblical elders. The first is found in verse 1 in the word elder, where he says, I exhort the elders among you. And in the Greek, this word is, is, is presbyteros, presbyteros, which you can understand where we get then the English word presbyter, right? Or presbyterian. It refers to one who governs the church or administrates. So he says, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort those who govern the church among you. The second role is found in verse 2 where he says that these elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And interestingly enough, and we could probably take a whole morning and study together the significance of the statement the flock of God that is among you, because what he's really saying is that those whom the Lord has divinely and sovereignly apportioned you to lead. In other words, church, it's not a coincidence that you are a part of this community. The Lord has sovereignly placed you within Capital City Church to be a part of, to find life within, So that word that we find in the Greek is poimen, someone who shepherds, or where we get the word pastor. So in the first sense, he's saying, you are to govern the church, and then he speaks to those who are shepherds of the church, which is one of the same. He's speaking to the same individual, but just a different function. And then he speaks of a third role of elders or leaders within the church when Peter says to exercise oversight. And the word in the Greek is this word episkopeo. Which in English is, of course, where we get Episcopalian, perhaps, maybe. But really it's where it's where the, the in, in the English we find the the word for bishop. And this in, in this role of an elder is someone who oversees gives oversight to the church. And so these three words are used interchangeably with each other to provide a robust view of those whom God has put in place and, listen, church, his grace to function as each is needed. This is why here at the church we don't use titles to describe who we are. We recognize a function of those that God has called to lead. And within each of us as elders is the equal call to shepherd, to oversee, to govern, to administrate, to be presbyteros, to be a poeman, and to be episkopos. Those are the same three within the one of each of us elders. But as I said, as insightful and helpful as Peter's words are to helping us understand A biblical healthy model of church government. It's really humility that's the driving force of Peter's instruction. And we know this because he commands those in place of oversight to lead, avoiding three pitfalls. When he says this, exercise oversight. And he says three things exercise oversight in verse two, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, he says. And thirdly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not under compulsion, not, greedy, not for greedy gain, and not domineeringly. Three pitfalls that Peter warns those who've been placed in leadership to walk in humility in. As you lead, may humility be present by the grace of God, so that you might not lead under compulsion, that you might not lead for greedy gain, and that you might not lead being overly domineering. In other words, what Peter is saying to those who lead the church is that, listen, it's not about getting, it's about giving. Being a leader within the church, being a pastor within this church, my call is not what I will gain from it but my call and my instruction is what I give to this church what I can give to you what I can give unto the lord because of the call that he has placed on my life this orientation church stands in in absolutely sharp and humble contrast to the spirit of this world and societal norms Amidst a cultural model that values amassing authority and gaining status, elders and other church leaders are to model something that is entirely, completely different. Biblical leadership is to be exercised in humility and by grace. Itself into submission of the great chief shepherd, as Peter says in verse 4 who is Christ himself, of course. Therefore, the motives of those who lead, the motives of those who shepherd, his church must also be right before the Lord. When we understand leadership in this way, it's not hard to see why we reject as a church in our teaching and in our values and in our modeling, it's not hard to see why we reject some of Western Christianity's more normal cultural norms, if you will. You don't call me Pastor Matthew. Some of you snicker because you couldn't even imagine calling me Pastor Matt, right? And I understand that some people do or have out of a place of, of honor or wanting to show respect, and so I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying, I wouldn't want that of you. We don't ask that of you because I, I don't call you Mother Anne or Teacher Ann or, you know, uh, traffic engineer Dan, or, or state worker Colleen, right? It sounds a little funny when we do that. But, listen, but this is what we've promoted within Christendom, is that somehow the title gives value to the individual. But what I'm saying to you is it's actually, it's, it's counterintuitive and, and extra-biblical, Because what we see here in Peter's instruction is actually quite the opposite. It's someone who's not interested in status, whose value isn't what they'll gain, whether it's respect or whether it's financial gain. It's someone who serves humbly as Christ served humbly and modeled for us. And so we don't do designated parking spots. I know, plaques on our doors. I don't even have a door to put a plaque on. We don't do private jets and hired cars, right? Although I might enjoy a couple of those. We don't value those things because it's not within Scripture. And someone said, or within our budget. My car service is my 17-year-old daughter. And she's free. Biblical leadership, church, is servant leadership. It's leadership that models what Paul would say in First Corinthians, to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's servant leadership. It's humble leadership. This is what Peter is saying. And it's essential to, again, the witness of the church. How we lead is vitally important. And therefore, we are to do it with humility. And Jesus didn't charter planes either. And then really quickly, he moves on to instructing those who don't fall under the category of elder or pastor, which is everyone else. And he says this, likewise, likewise in verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Likewise, or in other words, in the same manner, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. How is God given. Grace-enabled humility uniquely expressed between the church leaders and those whom they are called to lead. How is it expressed? According to Peter. Through obedience. Be subject, he says. Humility between leaders and those who are not leaders within the church is shown through obedience. And if you don't like what I've just said, then maybe this is for you this morning. To humble yourself. This is instruction of Scripture. That those who follow are to humble themselves and to humbly follow those whom the Lord has put in place to lead. And it doesn't mean that you are subject to our every whim or subject to our every pleasure. It's to say that just like how God has given civil authorities for the flourishing of humanity, so he has given church leadership and structure and authority for the flourishing of the church. It's no different. We subject ourselves to the authority that God has given us within the world, and therefore we also do it willingly and rightly and humbly by the grace of God to those whom the Lord has put within the church for its leadership. That's what this text says. So if you don't like it, don't get mad at me. It's, it's here, yeah? Right? I mean, am, am, I, am I wrong? Do you see this in here? You who are younger, be subject to the elders. We know the text, too, when we studied last summer through Hebrews, where he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them in chapter 13. Obey, your, leader, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. So again, we, we stand humbly and with fear before the Lord for that which he has called us to, knowing that we'll give an account for you. Which again, this is why we take covenant membership so serious. Because we have to give an account for you, and you'll have to give an account for how you've obeyed those whom the Lord has placed over you. And so he says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. And I know perhaps maybe some of you might be thinking, well, everyone? But Peter only says those who are younger. So before those of you who maybe have crossed over the 40-year mark get all excited that you are outside of this instruction, let me put it to you this way. Uh, it's widely understood among a majority of biblical scholars That the younger in Peter's comments is not a designation of age, but it's a designation of order. Let me read something to you that I found to be particularly helpful. One writer explains it this way. I think, actually, I have it for you up here to follow along with. Yeah. The contrast is not between the older men and the younger men of the church. Rather, it's between those who have the seniority and the commensurate standing that qualifies them to be presbyteroi, in contrast to those who, for whatever reason, do not. Official elders of the church were naturally chosen from those who held seniority in the faith. See 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul gives instruction to Timothy about not choosing new believers to be elders. Elders of the church were naturally chosen from those who held seniority in the faith, which most often also corresponded to physical age, not always, but also most often, those not yet qualified to be elders were younger in standing in the church. The term, therefore, refers to those who were not elders, that is to say, all other members. Does that make sense? Is that confusing? Okay. I just thought maybe that would be helpful because when we first read it, Because there are, and Paul does give instruction at various times to the younger men and to the older men. But the significance in this, in terms of what we're talking about this morning, is the humility of God that is necessary. And he's not saying it's just the younger men that are to humble themselves and obey or be subject to to the leadership of the church. He's saying, no, it's everyone. And actually, he reinforces the statement because he's going to say this just right after that. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Elders towards the body, we are to clothe ourselves in humility. The body towards the elders, and now he's giving instruction of the body towards one another. You see, all of it, he's working in this thread of how humility is of vital essence to our existence as a faith community. And in this statement, to clothe yourselves, Peter brings this beautiful picture that within the Greek text, we don't see it in the English, but it's present in the Greek, and that's this this idea where he says, clothe yourself. In that phrase, the Greek word that is used in verse 5, he uses a word that would have had immediate application to a Gentile living under Roman rule, because this word indicates a knot or a band by which two things are fastened together. So when he says, clothe yourself, he's saying, bind yourself together, all of you, with humility. But something even more beautifully true, or profoundly true, if you will, is that it had a deeper connotation. Because the root of that word, it comes from the same word that is used to describe the garment that slaves would wear around their waist tied to their belt it was it was servile garb if you will that was put on and so what he's saying in this is that clothe yourself not only bind yourself together but in an act of service unto one another put on humility and it was a it was a demarcation that you wore that distinguished between those who were free and those who were slaves and so it was always worn And so it is always worn with us. And so this is Peter's instruction within the church. Put on humility. Bind yourselves together. Looking around this room, you don't have the vantage point that I do. But it's to say, we bind ourselves together with one another through humility. This is a message that we've heard probably many times and that we would all be in agreement with. But what I'm asking you to do is is two things. Number one, contemplate the significance even further. But number two, receive the grace of God that enables this life within the church. Bind yourselves with humility as your servile clothing. He's encouraging us as fellow believers to show subjection to one another by putting on humility. And the admonition to everyone is the same as it is for elders. It's not under compulsion. We do this not under compulsion. Right? Is that right? We, sometimes we do it under compulsion. But it's, again, the grace of God is that we can do it without under compulsion. We don't do it for gain. Not what, what's in it for me. I'm going to humble myself so that I can ask you to help me move in a month. When I need to borrow your truck. (laughs) No, I'm just going to ask you. (laughs) We humble ourselves not for gain. We don't do it under compulsion. And we do it eagerly to serve. We don't do it as though someone were coercing us, but we do it willingly. Why? Because it's the same example that Christ Jesus made for us and gave to us. He humbled himself. Taking on the likeness of man, he became a servant. What does he say? I came not to be served, but to serve, with the words of Jesus Christ. In other words, church, clothe yourself in humility, not because you have something to gain from it, but rather out of an eagerness to honor God by doing so not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The NIV translates this, not for dishonest gain, but eager to serve. In other words, clothe yourself in humility, not because you have something to gain from it, but because you love the individual, because you care for those whom God has placed you around and with and to live this life out alongside of. This is why we put it on. Because, man, I love the Borgellis. So therefore, I'm going to put and clothe on myself and I'm actually going to bind myself together, whether you like it or not, I'm binding myself together with you in humility. That means, Tom and Nicole, I'm going to seek your best interest. That means I'm going to serve you as best as I possibly can in honor to God. That means I'm going to point you to Christ in every opportunity possible. That I'm going to think the best of you. That I'm going to love you guys that I will care for you, not just as God has called me to care this church, but as a friend and a fellow partner in the gospel. That's what it is to bind ourselves. And I could go around the room, and I would sincerely say that to each and every one of you who have been placed within this church. That's how I feel, and that's what we do with each other. We bind ourselves to one another. You see, church, I believe that this kind of church is an unstoppable church. Because remember what I said earlier, within the foundation of humility, there is an array of other divine and sovereign grace characteristics that are present. Within humility, they're also present here. Love, compassion, kindness, gentleness, value, generosity, etc., Pride works two ways. The antithesis of humility is pride. It works two ways, horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, pride despises fellow man. And vertically, pride sets itself up against God. But humility also works two ways, horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, it honors, it values, and it cherishes fellow man displaying God's heart towards mankind and those within the church, of course. And vertically, of course, it submits itself to God. Clothe yourself with humility, church. I believe, again, as I said to start with, that grace is present within this church for this type of life. It doesn't mean that we go around just deferring, like nobody can make a decision, and we're all just like, oh, I love you, I love you. you No, that's not what we're saying, but it's like... Again, it was, it's that same heart. Like, when I look at you, and I, man, what do I think about you? How do I relate to you? What do I pursue on your behalf? This is, that, that is binding, right? Because in a family, in the household of God, when the rub comes, humility is needed, right? Because humility, again, it thinks the best of someone. Perhaps it might take The quick road of reconciliation, right? Or whatever else it might look like. Humility is exercised. Health is restored. The partnership is preserved. And the gospel witness, the integrity of it is maintained and shown even brighter. When the world looks into a church that is like that, that loves deeply, that cares deeply, that pursues others higher than themselves. I mean, what, what can tear that down? It's convicting. It's convicting. Let's be that kind of church, amen? For the last time, I will say to you, in this series at least, brothers and sisters, this is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it, church.